It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. I'm Mark Feinstein, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to Executive Access. Before we get to this week's special trade deadline episode with Dan O'Dowd, we'd like to remind you, erectile dysfunction is more common than you might think. 52% of men over 40 will experience ED at some point, and about 75% of those men don't seek treatment. That's why Roman makes it easy to get expert treatment from a U.S. licensed physician all online. No judgment, no hassle, no hours spent in the waiting room. With Roman, you get expert medical care for ED right in the comfort and privacy of your own home. Everything is online, so it's convenient and discreet to contact a doctor about prescription medication. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com major and complete an online visit with your medical history and symptoms. A licensed physician will evaluate your online visit and let you know within 24 hours if medication is right for you. If prescribed by the doctor, Roman delivers genuine medication right to your door with free two-day shipping. Just go to GetRoman.com major to get a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com major to get started with a free online visit. That's GetRoman.com major. We are very fortunate to be joined by former Rockies general manager and MLB Network's own Dan O'Dowd. Dan, how you doing? Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I appreciate you taking some time. So you have a unique perspective on the trade deadline that very few people can have, which sure. is you've sat in the general manager's right. chair uh, during July, during these final weeks leading up to it. Um, but what's that like? What's it like, you know, just knowing that there is this, now it's a hard deadline, it used to be a little bit of a softer deadline, but what's it like knowing that, you know, these two weeks could shape not only your season, but, you know, the, the foreseeable future for yeah, your team? Yeah, well, I mean, Mark, it's exciting if you're in it. It's a totally different, you know, your your adrenaline rush comes when you have an opportunity where you've kind of rebuilt your organization, put yourselves in a position of having an opportunity to win. Now you get to make decisions that can add to the very fabric of your team, both on the field and off the field, which I think is important we should talk about because I think the fabric off the field is just as important as the fabric on the field. That's the fun part of the job. It's not so fun if you're on the other end of it and you're in a position where you're not contending and you're in that transition stage and you're looking to make moves that may reflect of what something may look like in the future. So you mentioned the off the field. Obviously, you've got scouts out of games leading up yeah. to it. When you think about how a guy's going to fit into your clubhouse or the kind of person he is, how in-depth does that go? Is it reaching out to former teammates, coaches who have been with him in other places? What goes into that process? Full-court press. You know, I'm a huge believer that you have worked that entire year to build a, a culture and environment in your clubhouse where everybody is now competing for something greater than themselves in a game where individual performance is rewarded even more so than team performance. You now have created this culture that, you know, you really – it's an exciting thing to be around. So you want to make really sure that whoever you add to your club is going to is going to add to the fabric of, of what you've worked hard, your group has worked hard to put into place. 
So, I mean, my calls, I mean, I had a network of uh, TV, radio, clubhouse people. Our trainers did an incredible job because trainers know information that no one else knows. So we put a huge circle of information out there to try to find out the human analytical part of a player because you spend so much time focusing on the hard data of the player at the trading deadline. I learned that you really need to make sure that that person you're adding to the club is going to benefit the club even if he doesn't play well. Even writers get involved. I've gotten no calls doubt. from GMs and other Absolutely. executives saying, hey, you covered this guy for a few years. What's he like? What's he Absolutely. like as a guy? Seems Absolutely. like anybody who's been yeah. around a player can offer you, you really some perspective. You don't go your traditional routes because traditional routes, clubs will feed out the same information, their traditional routes on their players. So you go the untraditional routes, anybody that's had a chance to touch the player in any way, shape, or form. And it's not necessarily you take any one opinion over another opinion. But it's the collective picture I call, I used to call it, we're creating a portfolio of information uh, on an individual, and we want to see, of all, does it connect the dots as you keep adding information about particular players? So now, going into free agency every year, you have a list of who the free agents are. You know who the players involved are. Here are the third baseman available. Here are the left fielders available. Sure. Here are the pitchers yeah. available. That's not the case at the trade deadline. So how often are you keeping in touch with other GMs around the league? How often are, I mean, you could talk to a GM of, of Team A today, and he says, no, we're not looking. But then three yeah. days later and three losses later, it might be a different situation. You know, I would, you know, to me, I'm a big believer there's skill and luck in the game of baseball. So the lar- smaller sample size, the greater lady luck plays a role. The larger the sample size, the more skill and talent play the role. So I never wanted to call clubs up too early in the year because – you know, it would almost be a little insulting if they were playing poorly because, you know, as, as evidenced by the Giants this year, I mean, things can change very quickly in our game. But I tell you, before the trading deadline, I would begin to have canvas calls, I'd call them, you know, calling people up, okay, what are you thinking about doing? If your season turns this way, you know, who might be in play? If your season turns the other way, what are you going to be looking to do? So you may have players that can help them if your season turns the opposite way. And you kind of know, Mark, Honestly, personalities do play a big role in this game, even though GMs will. Maybe it's different in today's game because I haven't been GM now in a few years, but there was a comfort level of authenticity of information coming from some people versus a blanket of no information coming from other people, or there were GMs in the game that would just be playing you, meaning that they would shop your whole organization just to kind of feel, you know, like who, who ranked what and where. And they were just on a fishing expedition. I won't. There's still come of the, some of those guys are currently GMs in the game. I'm not going to get <laughs> who into are that. they? I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so you you know you do realize the personality of the people you're dealing with, and ultimately at the end of the day, it was easier to get deals done with people that were a little bit more transparent than others. Well, sort of going off of that, we've seen some teams have a lot of success dealing with each other, right? We've seen like Tampa Bay and Seattle have made a number of trades. Um, but then again, Seattle's made a number of well, trades. That, with everybody. That's a fair point. <laughs> uh, but how much does it? play into the relationships you have with certain DMs and, and make it easier to go through the process with them based on the relationship. It really does you because you can cut you don't have to play all the you know, the games that, you know, you throw names out there, they're false names because you want to get to another game. With those type of guys, you know, for me, Billy Bean in particular, you know, we could cut right to the chase. Now he did get mad at me a few times, you know. And one year in particular as we go off topic here, but it's an interesting story. This podcast is that, all about off topic. We that, like off topic. Um, we weren't going anywhere. We had Marcus Scudero. And uh, Billy really, really wanted Marcus Scudero. He was in the middle. I don't remember what year it was. But 
the Giants also wanted Scudero. And Scudero, we had acquired, really is a good player. He was not a great player with us. He really struggled. The home road situation in Colorado really affected him. And so I kept saying to Billy, I was, was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I kept saying to, you know, Billy, you know, I mean, you got to step up with a player. And uh, he got so mad at me. He just, like, lost it, which is really unusual for Billy. And I said, well, screw you. And I slammed the phone down on him. And uh, then I called him back a little later. I said, listen, I'm going to trade him to the Giants. They're going to trade me Charlie Culberson. And it's better than the player. I'm not going to mention the player that he offered me. And uh, I went ahead and dealt him with Charlie Culberson. And, I mean, it was like months later before he calmed down enough to call me back. He said, you know, (laughs) I think you really made a good baseball deal there. Um, And, you know, obviously he was right on Scudero because Scudero went to the Giants that year and went off. He was one of their best players. So even the people you have really close relationships with, the trading deadline takes on another level of intensity because guys really feel the pressure of the opportunity to win. In our game, it's it's hard, man. They, those windows for, just don't open up and all the time unless you're the Yankees. Uh, it seems like it opens up every year for them. So, you know, you feel like it's your Super Bowl as a GM during those periods where you really want to take advantage of every conversation that you have to put your team into the best possible position of making the best possible decisions when that opportunity may arise. You know, on this very podcast, Billy talked to me about um, how he sort of felt the obligation to go for it when his team had a chance. I felt that way too. You know, when he was on the, if he was on the bubble, he always leaned towards the size of acquire, be a buyer, not a seller, because these opportunities don't come along every year. You know, as the game has gotten more intellectually gifted, I don't know if that's a blessing or a curse at times. Uh, when the game was simpler, meaning common sense ruled the game, not necessarily data in every way, shape, or form, you know, common sense would tell you. In Colorado, for me, I never knew when our windows were going to open up or close because the ballpark played such a unique factor, i.e. by the season they're having this year. When the season, when the ballpark's playing like it plays this year, Mark, I mean, there's just not a lot of answers to be found. So when the ballpark created somewhat of a neutral factor for you, and you had an opportunity to win. I never try to predict the future in the game. I used to do that when I was a younger GM. I would think about, well, if we did this, this could happen in the future. If we do this, that could happen in the future. I stopped trying to do that because the game is so difficult and so unpredictable. I just focused on what was in front of me at that particular moment. And when opportunities came to win, like they did for us in 07, and then again in 09 and 010 in Colorado, we tried to take advantage of them because we didn't know when those windows would open up again. Now, you started as a GM in 99. Right. Uh, the iPhone didn't exist back then. Texting was really in its infancy. And personal relationships were much more valuable than they are today. I was going to say, how, and you know, you it's were there for 15 years. How did technology change well, I can tell the trade you deadline is that time for you? As you got a little bit more experience in the job, when you had a phone call with a particular GM, you, you, you got off that call and instinctively, you knew if there's momentum to get a deal done there, or you were just on a fishing ex- expedition, you're going to get and you weren't going to get anything done. Um, social media through texting and however emails, that's taken that away, because you can't by a voice inflection, interest, you know, you can't read any of that, you know, whatsoever. So, I don't think that's been great for our game in that sense. The other thing conversations do is they create a relationship, and at the end of the day. You know, you have a tough time doing deals with people that you don't trust. I mean, that's the truth because in some way, shape, or form, 
the information that's coming back to you, if you can't validate it to the degree that you want to validate it, you'll be uncomfortable making a deal. I've had guys tell me that the GM meetings in November might be the only spot where GMs really see each other Correct. on any sort of, a, you know, more than just a passing hello at a ballpark yeah. if their teams are playing each other. How much do those meetings, and now with the way that businesses run the other 360 days of the year, how much do those meetings play into those relationships forming? They are, but, you know, relationships like anything, like the relationships you have with people in the game are based upon a long period of time of holding continuous conversations. The other thing is there are a lot of GMs in the game just are very um, socially awkward, for lack of a better word. And so having those kind of conversations with them in a meaningful way, they just don't really open themselves up to have that, which makes trades that much more data-driven in our game you know, than anything else. And honestly, there were times in a game where, like for example, early on in Colorado, um, our financial picture changed dramatically. It doesn't exist so much anymore in the game because of the way local media contracts have changed. But back then, there were huge discrepancies in local media contracts. And so there was huge disparity in revenue. And so there were trading deadlines I went into where, I mean, I had to make trades to move money. And when I knew that I had to make a trade and I had two or three clubs involved, if I had a relationship with one guy um, and I knew I could help that guy and I knew the talent I was going to get back was all going to be the same because right. they knew I was moving money, I, that's the direction I'd go in. That's interesting. I, uh, I look at the trade deadline now, and with the explosion of analytics uh, and the fact that a lot of teams view players similarly, and it used to be. I thought you saw that this offseason. Yeah, everybody views the game through the same lens anymore. So how much more challenging does that make it for GMs now to make trades with each other where, you know, you're calling about a guy. Well, of course you're calling about that guy. Everybody's calling about that guy, but we love that guy. And, uh, you know, it seems like finding the diamond in the rough is getting harder once in a while you see it. I mean, the Yankees traded for Luke Voigt last year in a deal that nobody paid any attention to, and he's been a huge contributor for them. But it seems like that's – and I actually know the Red Sox were interested in Voigt as well. They ended up trading for Steve Pierce, who worked out pretty well for them come October. But it seems like it's probably more difficult now to, yeah, to try to match up on some of these deals because the guys you're trying to get rid of, well, the other teams see the flaws yeah, of why you're trying to get rid exactly. of them. Exactly. The group think mentality that goes on in our game – uh, makes it extremely challenging to get deals done. From 2012 to not counting 2018, I think there's been 49 trades in the trades. Of the of the those 49 trades, a ton of prospects have been traded. Four four all stars came out of 49 trades. And, and so, Depoto made like 46 of them, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> so the reality of it is, you know, you have to be somewhat realistic going in. And the way young players now are being evaluated in our game, ranked, dissected. Um, you know, you could be a GM on a team with an awful record, um, but if you have a high ranking from a prospect status, you're a rock star within the game. Now, you go back 20 years ago, 25 years ago, you were evaluated solely on your record. And so GMs now look at prospects in a way that they've never looked at prospect before. Not just of the the dollar value, how it impacts your bottom line, but also how it impacts job security. So you really can be a club that could lose 100 games, but if your farm system is ranked in the top six in the game, you know, that 100 losses are totally overshadowed. So that dynamic is harder, too. So getting the Glaber Torres anymore 
in deals. I mean, it took an experienced GM like Theo. If that was a younger GM that was data-driven completely, that deal would have never gotten done. Glaber would not have been available. He would not. But Theo realized, based upon his experience in Boston, that that when you truly know you have a team that has an opportunity to win a World Series, again, what I said before, you can't predict the future to know how all those stars are going to lie. Even though you think they're going to, they just don't that we're going to pay an unbelievable heavy price here, and it's going to come back to bite us at some point in time. But we recognize that this window of opportunity may never come open again. If that was another GM was completely data-driven and they looked at the numbers, the value of Glaber Torres was going to provide to the Cubs over the next eight, nine years, they would have never made that deal. Of course, you know, you were also factor in the 108-year drought and the fact that they Everything. had – Javi Baez is a young second baseman. Addison Russell. Yeah, but still, his trouble they yet knew at that what point. kind of player they had in Torres. Sure. They knew. I don't know if they knew exactly the kind of player they had in Eloy, but I knew that the kind of player they had in Torres. That that summer that Brian Cashman had, that week that he had in 2016, everybody thought, oh, here comes the Yankees rebuild. And then, of course, they end up challenging for the wild card. They yeah, get to the and ALCS the, beauty, the next year. What people missed on that rebuild is that Damon Oppenheimer had done such an incredible job in prior drafts and their international department had done such a good job that they had this, as you know, you cover it, they had this like this wave of talent in the lower part of their system that was about to hit the beach, and all he did was add a few more pieces that were already ready there that kind of augmented that wave of talent. Then they have the financial capability of augmenting their talent with other players, and that just created just a perfect storm. Now, are you surprised these days, given the – given the emphasis that's put on prospects and the emphasis that's put on controllable players, when you see a deal like we saw last summer when the Dodgers go out and give up five prospects for Manny Machado, for two months of Manny Machado? Yeah, because I knew that the Dodgers didn't give up. You know, there's different type of prospects. You know, So I used to group our prospects in impact, contributors, and value. Other than the outfielder Diaz that they got back, who has some um, pitch recognition, bat-the-ball issues to resolve, I wasn't sure anybody in that grouping was more va- was more value I, in that value box. So I think Dan Duquette recognized that he was in a box with the Orioles system at that point in time, that if he could get quantity – and out of that quantity became maybe one impact guy and a few more contributors. That was the direction he was going because the Orioles system was, you know, bereft of prospects. So I think he went for a value play, but I think he knew that he probably wasn't getting back a ton of high-ceiling, impactful players in that deal. How do you think some of these GMs are looking at when they have a controllable guy? Uh, you know, we've heard a lot of talk about Stroman. We've heard a lot of talk about Trevor Bauer, um, Matthew Boyd, who's got a few years of control left. How do you weigh, you know, well, all right, I know we could have this guy on our team next year also or two years, but the package we can get back for him now. How realistic do you have to be in your own mind in terms of your club's timeline yeah, and when think, you think you're going to yeah, be able to compete? Mark, I think great GMs, not good GMs, but great GMs do three things exceptionally well. Uh, one, they have a complete awareness of where they're at in their process. Number two, they have great clarity of vision to know what it's going to look like when it's done. 
And number three, they know exactly how they want to get from point A to point B to eventually point C. And so whatever those situations that you meant to mention without commenting on anyone in particular, those GMs need to know those three issues completely. So like a comment like the Tigers, they got to know what the timeline is on Mize, Fiedo, and Manny. So when that timeline hits, where is Boyd in that process? And he also knows now, out knows all of their system and where their holes are to augment what the strength is of the organization. And so if a GM is not sure, and when I say where they are in the process, are they good enough to win now? Are they good enough just to be competitive now? Or are they still in that transition phase of trying to become competitive? you got to know where you're at completely, no matter if no one else in the organization knows that. So you're going to always have your field staff. The one thing about field staff that you love about them is that they always feel like they're one person away from taking that next step. You, you can never think that way. You have to be totally unemotionally connected to that. And you may have your own internal staff telling you, hey, we need to do this, we need to do that, we need to trade this player, we need to trade that player. More mistakes are made in this game when you don't know your internal players. So you spend all your time evaluating players outside the organization. you got to know your players inside the organization just as more so than you do outside the organization. That's when I say knowing we're at in the process, that's knowing all of those things. Now, if you're a team that's 15 games out of a playoff spot, it's an easy decision in a lot of cases. But it shouldn't be that even if you're the Rangers or the Rockies right now or the Giants right now, or any of those teams whose record is hovering around 500, you should know, you should understand completely the heartbeat of your club. And then you have a clear vision of, yeah, this is where we are now, but this is the vision I want to get us to. So how do I maximize this opportunity at this moment to get me to the vision I am trying to take this organization to, no matter what else anybody else may think around you. I guess this goes back to what we talked about with with Billy Bean before. What about when your timeline speeds up? You look at the Twins two years ago. They, you know, Thad Levine and Derek Falvey take over. They were sort of figuring out their their organization. All of a sudden, they're contending. Milwaukee, their timeline got sped up. Texas this year, they're you know they were not expected to be. Those anywhere are more difficult near. situations to be in only because you don't know your internal process of players that well. It's like when Thad and Derek jumped in, they knew they had talent, but they, you know, until you live with a player for 12 months, you really don't know what you have in the player, and you really don't know what you have in your system. So you can end up trading players along the way to fill that particular need, and you look up two, three years later and went, oh, my gosh, what were we? Those are the really difficult boxes to be in. I thought that um, the Brewers have done – a really good job with it because they've added players more around the edges other than their deal that they made to go get Yelich. They traded, you know, obviously some really good players in that deal that are starting to show that from a pitching standpoint. But I thought he's lived around the edges exceptionally well there without gutting his system in the process to try to win. So let's do a little Dan O'Dowd trade deadline, this is your life. Sure. Uh, 2000 was your first trade deadline as general manager overwhelming experience what's it like to be in that in that chair yeah. you've been in the front office for a long time in Cleveland but what's it like to be the guy making that yeah, final decision you know, in Cleveland I was blessed because uh, John's management style in Cleveland was he allowed me to do you know a significant amount of work and so the trade deadline for me although John made the final decisions but I had done majority of the legwork 
But you're right. When you sit in that chair, there's, everything speeds up on you. In 2000, again, we were we ended up 82 and 8. I knew we weren't that good. You know, I knew we weren't. There was no reason to get overly aggressive at the trading deadline because I thought we didn't know enough about what the heck we were doing as it relates to the ballpark in particular to do a whole lot. But I did make some mistakes there because I traded Figgins that year uh, for Barté, um, trying to help our outfield situation, which turned out to be one of the – again, that's an example of not knowing your system. That's why I can speak from experience. Right. Uh, 2001, uh, 2001, actually, you traded Figgins. You traded Todd Walker yeah. to the Reds. Jermaine died to the A's. All three of those guys obviously had really nice careers. Yeah, so the Nephi Perez deal with the as another Billy Bean. That's why Billy and I had a running joke that he always owed me one, <laughs> uh, which I got back with him at Cargo at a later date. Um, I couldn't take Jermaine Dye's money, so the whole purpose of moving Nephi was money. So Billy called me up and said, you know, um, I have no interest in Nephi, but I think you can get Jermaine Dye for Nephi, and you know I'll give you some young players back. I'm not going to give you a whole lot. Turned out give me didn't give me anything. <laughs> and Jose Ortiz, the late Mario Encarnacion, and I don't know who else. There were some pitchers, um, but that was a case of me. I only had one team interested in Nephi, and that was the Royals, and they had to move money too. So I was just the middleman on that deal. 2004, you moved Larry Walker to St. Louis. Uh, that was an August deal, actually. August yeah, 6th. that really interesting part of that deal, Mark, is that we had a deal done with Larry and the Texas John Hart, and we were getting back a right-hand pitcher named John Thompson and Ian Kinsler. Wow. And Larry turned the deal down. He had complete no trade, and I was um, I was really angry because he had asked to be traded, and um, we knew we had to trade him. It had gotten to the point where you just know. We could not hold on to him. And again, it was another financial situation. And so he just, you know, he knew where he wanted to go, and ultimately he leveraged himself into exactly where he wanted to go, and we got uh, pennies on the dollar back. We got scrap heaps because he knew we we were boxed completely, and that really taught me a lesson about no trade clauses. We've seen that in years since. I mean, we saw Stanton basically dictate where he wanted to go. We've seen that with a number of players. How, how tough is that to be in the GM situation it's where awful. you really yeah, have limited you know, I, options and everybody knows you have limited options? Yeah, and it's awful because at the end of the day, you're judged by your resume. But that resume is filled with so many holes because no one understands the stories that goes into every decision. Right, they just see make. the trade. So they say, they look at Jermaine Dye and, oh, that was a bad deal for Dan. Well, I mean, you know, basically it was the only deal I could make. In Larry's case, he, if we had gotten Ian Kinsler, we would have gotten a guy who would have been prolific in the Rockies' history as far as – what he would have done in that ballpark at second base, and he turned the deal down. I'll give you another example. We had a deal done with Larry Walker. We had a deal done with Larry Walker to the Arizona Diamondbacks for Matt Williams, uh, DeRazzo, and David DeLucci, and one other player he turned that deal down to. And so, I mean, none of those deals, right. you know, no one knows about. But, you know, honestly, Larry – Got a no-trade clause from the Rockies before I got there, and he exercised his right. I respected that, but, you know, I wasn't happy about it. So we mentioned that the, the Walker deal was on August 6th. This year, no, no, more, no, no more August trades. How do you think the elimination of post-waiver trades will impact the deadline this year and going forward? You know, I've, I've gotten really vacillated on this. I could see it turning clubs into, say, you know, we have a generation of clubs that don't like to make decisions because they have benefited from not making decisions. And so 
is this deadline going to put them in a position where they can say, God, well, I mean, we're not that good. There's only a, you know, a reality since 2012, there's only one wild card team has gone to the World Series. So that's one point, what, 8% of the 70 teams that have gotten into postseason. So the odds aren't really good. So it's better we don't do anything. The other part of it is, is it going to force clubs to be more aggressive in their thought process knowing they don't get another bite of the apple. And I'm not sure which way this is going to go. I, I would tell you the past generation of GMs, it would these the, they would cowboy up and they'd be get aggressive. Because that was by nature, they didn't they didn't have analysis through paralysis. This generation's of GMs, I'm I'm curious on whether we're going to see less deals because of it. This is not a second-guessing situation, but 2005, you trade Sean Chacon to the Yankees. Yep. He was 1-7 with a ERA over 4 for you guys. Goes to New York, 7-3, 285 ERA for the Yankees, helps them get to the playoffs. Not that you regretted the deal or anything, but do you get frustrated watching a guy who struggled that year yeah. in your place go somewhere else and thrive? That happened to me a lot in Colorado, Mark, simply because the elements that are in play there are so uniquely different. And uh, but you know when a player is done, and there were extenuating circumstances there. Uh, local kid grew up in Greeley. It was just he needed a change of scenery to not just get his baseball career back in order, is to get his life back in order too. And great move on Cash's part. And I told him that I said, man, you're you're getting something really good here. Um, he just needs to change the scenery. And in that case, I was really, really happy, as strange as that sounds, because I was really happy for the kid. Did you have to look to the trade market more uh, as the GM of the Rockies because pitchers were hesitant about signing as free agents? Yeah, and I really just looked to the trade market for relievers, not starters. Okay. No, I, I never felt comfortable that anybody would get better in our place from a starting standpoint. But I knew, based upon the history of the club and success of relievers, that for shorter periods of time. And that worked with Rafi Betancourt, Latrell Hawkins, <clears throat> Jeremy Affelt. We had much more success in building a bullpen uh, going into the later, later parts of the season competitively than ever taking on a starting pitcher. We'd been better. Sir, we were doing openers in 2007 before it was used as openers with Frankie Morales and right. Danny Bautista. I mean, a whole bunch of different guys. We were using openers because we were just trying to patch the beginning of the game to get to our bullpen. We talked about those teams that are sort of on the on the you know cuff about where they're going to go buy sell. Yep. Two thousand seven, you guys are three and a half games out of first place. You didn't make a single trade in July. Right. Um, you guys ended up obviously with that huge run in September. Uh, rode that all the way to the World Series. When you're that close, and is it a matter of knowing what you have and what maybe there's not anything out there that you think will help you? How do you decide yeah, when that you're that close? What you know, to we do? had a, we have a wave of talent come through our organization in '07. And um, I thought the club had underachieved all year long. And what I, the, cl- the players that were offered to us concerned me that they were going to affect the temperament of our clubhouse. They just weren't the right fit. I felt strongly, and so did Kelly, our late president, Kelly McGregor. As strange as it sounds, we, we felt like we were on the verge of something really good happening. Now, we didn't know that it was going to happen the way it, well, Kelly did. I didn't know it was going to happen the way that it did. But we felt like it would be better to stay status quo and let these guys, because they had all gone through the losing together, and most of them had come up in the minor league system together, to figure it out on their own. 
rather than to transplant somebody else into that mix and give them an excuse not to figure it out on their own. 2011, you have a big trade chip, Ubaldo Jimenez. Um, what's it like to have a player in high demand and know that there are teams out there that well, it wasn't you know. as high a demand because the industry knew what was going on. Abaldo had came to me um, and said, basically, if I didn't rework his contract, he was going to shut it down. Didn't First time ever in my career I had a player do that. Didn't, didn't leave you with a lot of options there then. Didn't leave me with a lot of options. <laughs> and um, honestly, we made what we thought was a good deal with Pomerantz and um, White, both number one picks. Everything else, like, the, you know, Brian was upset at me at that trading deadline. He really wanted Jimenez, but he just didn't really offer anything of perceived same, same caliber. But everybody knew that I could not bring Abaldo back into that situation. So, I mean, literally, it was an issue within our clubhouse to bring him back into our clubhouse because the players knew that he was not all in. And so... Um, mistake that I made there was not the acquisition of the players was not I shouldn't have let them touch Coors Field for a whole other year so it was that that's the thing about trades that people don't think thoroughly enough about and I learned something through that is that the transition of acclimating the player to your organization and maximizing his gifts and skill sets is just important as the actual trade themselves and I think that's where the game has gotten so much better than it was, you know, just even five, six years ago. So it's been a few years since you've been in the GM chair. Now you're at OMB Network. You're, anal you know, doing analysis yep. of all these trades. This time of year, do you miss it? I do, yeah. No, I, I, what I miss about it is not the actual trade itself. was the collective effort of the group, the excitement level, the level of enthusiasm, the passion in people, the creative thought process to work through problems and issues. And just that everybody collect is the one time where everybody's egos and agendas are secondary to the, the, the mission of trying to help your team get better. And it's the, it's the one time of the year where the symmetry between your field staff and your front office is just awesome. Because they know you're working as hard as you possibly can to improve it. They feel that level of excitement that they've now put themselves in a position for the club to actually do something. And it's that little slice of heaven, what I consider to be a miserable joy of a job, you know, that uh, it's very rewarding. Last one for you, whether it's your time in Cleveland, your time in Colorado, is when you think of the trade deadline, is there one story that stands out to you of like the craziest moment or the... Uh, just one memorable story that when you think of, you say, wow, that was a, a Yeah, the missed opportunity. Um, you know, those Cleveland teams were, like, incredibly talented. But the one thing that we missed always was that that one guy, that guy guy that could take the ball of the first game of playoffs, LCS, World Series. And so um, we had a shot at Randy Johnson. And, you know, it's funny, our owner at that time, Dick Jacobs, he was a, a wonderful owner. I mean, the late Dick Jacobs. I was just, he and his brother were just incredible people. But he viewed the franchise always as a long-term asset play. So he never wanted to be all in to ever win because he never wanted to wake up again and be the Indians that once were. 
And so we had a trade, Brian Giles and Bartolo Colon, and I don't remember the third player. Well, they got back John Halama, Freddie Garcia, and Guillen from the Astros. So it was the Astros and the Indians up till with Woody up Woody Woodwork up till midnight. And uh, at the end of the day, we didn't pull that trigger. And I just always look back at that and go, gosh, you know, now looking back at that, you know, would that have been the piece that got us over the hump in, in Cleveland, you know? But when you're in the middle of it, you know, you, you end up falling in love with your young players because you, you know that there's going to be transition at the, at the big league level and you know some of the players that you love with now, you, you have no chance to keep. But you know, God, we've got Giles right behind him, and we got Cologne right behind him, and I—it was a third player who was really good too. Behind, it might have been Richie Sexton that was behind them. So you knew that you had pieces in place to allow you never to really stink again. But that's the one that I go in Colorado. I never really had a chance to play on anything like that, of that kind of magnitude. We were never in a position to make that kind of deal ever. So that's the one deal that. Um, you know, I did make a deal with Steve Phillips that was past the deadline, and that was crazy. That was for Jay Payton, and I don't remember who the pitcher, Joe Kennedy, I don't know who the pitcher was involved, and that was hilarious how that deal came down. It was just funny because Steve and I were just, you know, laughing at the end of the day that we made a deal after the deadline had already passed. And that so. Randy Johnson was 98. So you guys end up playing the 114 win Yankees in the playoffs. Correct. That year. Who knows what might have happened, right? I mean, that Correct. And that that was a year that we came really close to even beating them in that in that playoff series. And that you was were the up first two games to one. That was the first series. That was the first trade that came along where for John and I, where we were like, man, you know, prior to that, you know, we just nothing ever that you know it was Billy it's Billy Swift, Brett Saber, Higgins, but they're all near the tail end of their careers. Right. This is the first guy that was like, I mean, he was a dude, man. Like and we, now we probably couldn't catch him. We Youngs after that. So yeah, yeah we probably, so. I don't know if we would have been able to keep him, but I do think we would have beat the Yankees that year. And, you know, coming off the 97 World Series and going, I do believe if we had gotten back there, we would have figured out a way to win it the following year. So that was the one that, you know, what if. Dan O'Dowd, MLB Network, I really appreciate the time. It's a lot of fun. Thanks okay, a lot. Thanks. Many thanks to Dan O'Dowd for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. Coming up in future episodes this season, I'll sit down with D-backs Assistant General Manager Jared Porter, Rangers Assistant GM Josh Boyd, and other executives around the league. And if you haven't checked it out yet, be sure to download and subscribe to MLB's Full Account Podcast. We have a four-episode look at the life and career of new Hall of Famer Mariano Rivera, who sat down with us for a lengthy interview as part of the project. Make sure to check it out, MLB's Full Account Podcast. You can search for Executive Access and Full Account on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Art19, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinstein. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story and one of the best 
stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.